The following audio is from Solid Rock Community Church. More information about Solid Rock Community Church is available at www.solidrockcommunitychurch.com. Hey, um, I'd like all my grandchildren to stand that are here. Not all of them are here, but would you, my grandchildren, would you give it up for my grandchildren? That is so cool. Thanks. I'm glad you guys are, glad you guys are here. That's, that's fantastic. Well, um, as I mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, today is, is a little bit bittersweet for me, uh, and um, Kathy and I have had a few hours to kind of keep our emotions in check, because this is the last sermon uh, that I will preach as the senior pastor of Solid Rock Community Church, and um, so it's a little emotional. Uh, next week, We'll be celebrating, you know, as we move into retirement and Solid Rock's last service together. And so I just want to say I'm so glad that all of you are here today. Um, as many of you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was able to check something off of my bucket list that's been on my bucket list for a couple decades now when I visited the Roman Colosseum in Rome. And uh, it was such an amazing time. And even while I was there, it was a little bit bittersweet for me because even though I was very, very grateful to be able to see uh, the Roman Colosseum, it was bittersweet because of what I know happened in the Colosseum. And as I looked out over uh, the Colosseum and the arena floor and realizing that hundreds of thousands of people actually lost their lives in that arena, many of them who were uh, Christians. Uh, it was just, again, a kind of a, a bittersweet moment, but I want to tell you what else it did for me as well, for me personally. It gave me this overwhelming sense of appreciation for the church, which is what I want to talk about today. Last sermon, talking about the church. Uh, it just gave me this overwhelming appreciation, not only for the local church, but for the capital C church, the church in general, because when I think about the church, I think about how incredibly remarkable the church really is. And to help you appreciate uh, how remarkable it is, and to maybe help you appreciate the opportunity and the stewardship and the responsibility that we have, I wanna do something a little bit different today. When I was there in Rome a couple of weeks ago and was looking at the Colosseum, it was like stepping back in time. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take you back in time with me. And so I need you to use your imagination a little bit this morning. I want you to imagine that you and I and four of your best friends, and it, you know, whoever you want to choose, it could be family members, I mean, you pick the people, that all six of us, four of them, you and me, the six of us, we were able to somehow go back in time to the city of Rome in the first century. The year is the year 82 AD, and, and in the year 82 AD, when we show up in the Roman Forum, and of course, people there are all amazed that, oh my gosh, there are time travelers from the 21st century you know, that have shown up. 
But when we show up in this period of history, the emperor is a man by the name of Domitian. You may remember that from school, Emperor Domitian. But Emperor Domitian, who was the, who was the son of Vespasian, I want to give you a little context here. And Vespasian was actually a Roman general that Nero sent into uh, Judea you know, to you know, drown out the Jewish rebellion that was happening. He was there about two years when Emperor Nero was assassinated. So Vespasian goes back to Rome. He becomes the emperor, but he leaves his son Titus there to finish up the work, to basically, you know, besiege the city of Jerusalem. And, you know, he punches through the two exterior walls. They destroy this glorious, beautiful temple. But he eventually comes back uh, to Rome. He becomes the emperor as well after Vespasian dies. But he's only the emperor for about two years. And then his brother Domitian becomes the emperor of Rome. And so when we show up from the 21st century, when we show up, he's the emperor. And word travels fast that there are time travelers from the 21st century who have come to the city of Rome. And word reaches Emperor Domitian, and immediately he sends someone and he invites us to this incredible, incredible party. And the party is at the Roman Colosseum, the Colosseum that I just showed you a picture of. It's at the Roman Colosseum because it's at the end of a hundred days of games, and they're celebrating the hundred you know, days of games with this elaborate, elaborate uh, celebration and party. And so the person they send to us guides us out of the Roman Forum toward the Colosseum, and as we're going in that direction, we pass beneath the recently, just recently constructed Arch of Titus, which I think there's a picture of. I was standing right there about 20 feet from that just a couple of weeks ago. The Arch of Titus was actually something that Domitian had constructed to commemorate his brother's victory over the Jewish people. And uh, just, just recently, like 12 years earlier. And as you move underneath the arch, as we move underneath the arch, we're able to look up. And we're actually able to see inscriptions depicting the looting of the Jewish temple, you know, like 1,400, 1,500 miles away. Eventually, eventually we are escorted through the VIP gate of the Roman Colosseum where we are greeted by hundreds and hundreds of people. There's a large party. There's a large patio. There's food everywhere. There are curious senators. There are slaves. There are escorts. And of course, there seated on a temporary throne is the emperor himself, Domitian, surrounded by all of his praetorian guards who are dressed in purple. It is a lavish, lavish meal. We're unfamiliar with most of the food, but it was exotic meat. It was exotic uh, fruit, lots of eggs, enough wine to, you know, float a ship. You ask for water, and I remind you that the water here will probably kill you, so we go thirsty, okay? After the meal, Emperor Dementia sends someone to us, sends a messenger to us with this message. He walks over to our table where we're sitting, and he says, the emperor, the emperor would like a report from the future. He wants to know what is the state of the Roman Empire 
in the 21st century. And of course, you look at me because, you know, I'm the only one that can communicate. It's my story, so I'm the only one who can speak Latin. Okay, so it's my story, right? And, and I realized that I took German in high school, but I didn't take Latin. But in this story, I took Latin. So, and I realized, man, if I don't get this right, then all of us may become part of the gore that's happening down there on the arena floor. And so I begin, and I say to him, I say, Your Excellency, Your Excellency, to understand the future of Rome, I must first rehearse a recent bit of history. On our way to the Roman Colosseum, we passed through the arch celebrating your brother's victory over the Jewish rebels. And while it is true that the Roman legion decimated the Jewish people, and while it is true that they destroyed this glorious temple, the God of the Jews escaped unscathed. And as difficult, Emperor Domitian, as difficult as it will be for you to believe or to comprehend, eventually, Rome, the empire, will embrace the Jewish God as their God. Eventually, Rome will come to believe and accept that the Roman gods that you currently worship are no Roman God, are no gods at all. In fact, a future emperor will actually oversee the destruction of all your temples. A future Roman emperor will eventually oversee disbanding the priesthood and making it against the law to sacrifice an animal to any of your gods. Well, at this point, the crowd just erupts. And you're looking at me wondering, you know, what I've just said because you're, you're just trying to figure it out because you don't understand the foreign language. And Domitian, Domitian is leaning in. And the praetorian guards, one by one, drops their right hand to the hilt of their gladius, which we were able to see when we were in Rome, what that looked like. And they're all looking for a signal from the emperor. And he leans forward and he raises his hand. And he calls for silence, and he asks this question, how, how can this be? And I say to the emperor, Domitian, in order to understand this, I have to take you back even further in time. 50 years ago, just 50 years ago, during the reign of Emperor, Emperor Tiberius Caesar, in the land of Judea, a man came out of the wilderness named John. And he proclaimed that the Jewish God was about to do something in the world for the world. He was an unseemly character, but he seemed to attract all of these large, large crowds. In fact, all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to him. He actually had a nickname. They actually called him Emperor. He actually, they actually called him John the Baptist. In fact, I see in the crowd here today that Josephus is here. In our world, Josephus is a famous Jewish historian. And an emperor, Josephus, can confirm what I'm saying about John. John will eventually get sideways with Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas will have John beheaded. But before he beheads him, John the Baptist announced that one is coming after me, one who will be greater than me. And the leaders in Judea are wondering if, in fact, maybe John was actually claiming that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that they had been waiting for for a long, long time, a king that would eventually, in their minds, overthrow Rome. 
But John said, no, I'm, I'm not the one. There's one coming after me. Keep your eyes open. And sure enough, very quickly before John was beheaded, Jesus of Nazareth shows up on the banks of the Jordan River and he begins to preach. And he spoke as no one had ever spoke before. And he announced a brand new kingdom. He announced a kingdom that was not of this world, that a kingdom that was going to touch down in this world and impact and influence the entire world. He was a miracle worker. And like John the Baptist, he attracted large, large crowds. But eventually, he got sideways with his own people, you know, the Jewish leaders. And they had him arrested. And they had him condemned. And ultimately, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. And, and I see as well that Senator Tacitus is here with us in the crowd. And in our world, in the 21st century, Emperor Senator Tacitus is known for being a famous historian in this area, in this era, and he can confirm what I said about Jesus of Nazareth. He can confirm what I said that, in fact, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus suffered the most severe kind of punishment. He can confirm that, in fact, that what should have been an end was actually a beginning because after Jesus was buried for three days the way that Jewish you know the Jewish measured days after their Passover the tomb was found open and empty and at first emperor they thought it was grave robbers but that really didn't make any sense because Jesus was poor they you know he was a rabbi there really wasn't anything for them to steal and besides it wasn't items that were buried with him that were gone his body was missing and within days, there were rumors that he had been seen in the city of Jerusalem. He had been seen in the vicinity of, in the vicinity of Judea and even in Galilee. And at first, it was individuals. And then it was groups. And then it was tens. And then it was dozens. And ultimately, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people claimed that they had seen Jesus alive. And his resurrection galvanized the courage of his followers. And they began to spread the news that, in fact, as Jesus had said when he was alive, and as Jesus said after his resurrection, the kingdom of God has come. But it's not a kingdom of this world, but it's a kingdom for this world. And Jesus, the resurrected rabbi, is in fact the king. And his followers would declare that Jesus, the Messiah, is our Lord. His closest followers would be arrested, beaten. Many of them would be put to death, but they persisted. Their confidence was convincing. Their confidence was, was contagious because they had seen, had meals with, listened to their resurrected friend and rabbi, Jesus, an emperor, Domitian. You know this. You know this, that right now, in this city, there are citizens, slaves, men, women, freedmen, visitors who are meeting all over this city right now, in their apartments, in their gardens, under trees by the river, who worship Jesus of Nazareth as their Lord and Emperor. For the next 230 years, for the next 230 years, your empire will leverage all of its power 
and all of its might to stamp out this Nazarene sect, but your efforts will ultimately fail. And though Jesus of Nazareth never visited your, glan, your grand and glorious city in the 21st century, where we're from, in the 21st century, his name and his likeness and his symbol will adorn buildings throughout this city. Emperor Dimension, as impossible as it must be for you to imagine, one day, one day over the very gate where you entered into the Colosseum just a couple of hours ago, there will hang an enormous cross. And this is the cross I saw when I was there. An enormous wooden cross will hang there that will no longer represent the ruthlessness of the power of Rome. But in the 21st century, in the 21st century, it will represent the power and the love of God, the Jewish God, Yahweh. Well, then I stop and I look around. And they're speechless. I mean, it's silent. This, this is impossible. This is impossible. The cross, a symbol of love. All their temples throughout the empire destroyed. No more priesthood. No more animal sacrifices. Jupiter replaced by the God of the Jews. A Jewish rabbi who's been dead for 50 years will somehow be worshipped by the empire that executed him. And before they can respond, I continue. Oh, great Domitian, as for you, in the future, you will be primarily known for your reign of terror. In fact, Domitian, you along with every other Roman empire will, will ultimately be reduced to a paragraph or maybe two. In our modern history books, with one exception, and the one exception will be the great Caesar Augustus. His name will be referenced every single year in homes and in places of worship throughout and around the world, but not in recognition of his accomplishments. He will be referenced within the, within the context of the story of the birth of the Jewish Savior. He will be a footnote in the story of the birth of the Jewish king, Jesus, whose words will be compiled and distributed more widely than all the Roman emperors put together. And as impossible, as impossible that I'm sure all of this sounds to you, Jesus of Nazareth will be the most influential and revered man who ever lived. And this Emperor Domitian is the future of your glorious empire. Rome is not eternal, but there is a God who reigns eternal. It was his temple that your brother destroyed. It was his son that your governor crucified. But in the end, it was his sovereign purpose that your empire advanced. And then I sit down in the silence. This is unimaginable. This, this goes beyond offensive. There, there, there's no appropriate response. But then slowly, ever so slowly, a smile 
breaks out on Emperor Dimension's face. And then he bursts into laughter. And because everybody takes their cue from the emperor, everybody else bursts out into laughter, but nobody knows why. Nobody knows why. And then he says, he hoists his cup, proposes a toast to the storyteller from Rome, from the future. And he says, brilliant. Brilliant. You had me believing you right up to the end of your tale. And then he calls for the music. And he makes his way to our table and he congratulates us. And he says, I insist, I insist that you have dinner with me once again tomorrow night. But this time, no more fanciful stories. No more, no more tales. I want the truth. I must know what the future holds for our glorious empire and for this, our eternal city. You see, what happened, what happened, not, not what was believed, what happened was absolutely unimaginable. What happened was absolutely impossible. What happened, no one could dream up. What happened, no one could plan. What happened, no one could orchestrate. But what happened is exactly what Jesus had predicted. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by a group of people who had no future, no hope, other than to simply live under, you know, live under the heel of the, the Roman Empire, uh, you know, overtaxed, misled by their religious leaders, Jesus says to them, he says, guys, he says, guys, and then to everybody else who had gathered around, because with Jesus, they were the apostles, and then there was always the crowd. And so he looks at them, and he says, he says to, the, to the apostles, and he says to this group of people, he says, ladies and gentlemen, I just, I just want you to know, I will build my ecclesia. One day I will build my gathering, my congregation, my assembly, my movement. It is going to happen. And the gates of Hades, death itself, will not be able to overcome it. And I would imagine that those words must have sounded so hollow and so trite and so thin and so unbelievable standing out there in that blazing, hot Syrian sun. But friends, Jesus meant exactly what he said. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And it didn't. And it won't. Because what God began and what God continues to do through the life and the ministry and the, and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, it's linear. God showed up in history with a plan and we have so much to look back on. We have so much to appreciate and to think, to think that we are a small part of what God is doing in our generation in the church that began all those years ago against insurmountable odds. I mean, when you think about it, it is such a privilege. It's what wakes me up in the morning. It is what has woken me up for the past 21 years when things would get difficult, when things would get challenging, when things would like, do, oh, are we going to be able to make it? It's what's kept me going. Because we all have a little bit of time. 
And we all have a little bit of opportunity. And we have been invited into this grand, grand narrative that no one could have imagined and no one could have orchestrated. But my friends, it happened. Jordan Peterson, in his book, 12 Rules of Life, says it so perfectly. And I just want you to let him tell you. uh, It's a fairly new book, but it basically says what people have been saying for generations. And he just brings it to life in such a way that he says it way better than I could. But here's what he writes. He says this. Christianity achieved well nigh the impossible. There it is. The Christian doctrine... Doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. Friends, this was unheard of. The implicit, check this out, the implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible, impossible, impossible odds. It is, in fact, he writes, nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves. How? Why? Under the sway of an ethical religious revelation such that the ownership and absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. And then this next statement is so heavy, it's so weighty, it's so important. It's why I want to read this quote to you because, listen, because what is so normal to us in the Western world in the 21st century, what is so normal to us, what is so evident to us that we just think, well, that's common sense. What, what is so self-evident, I mean, how could anyone even miss it? And yet we are absolutely wrong. Here's what he writes. He says, we forget, and we forget because most of us never knew, we forget that the opposite uh, was self-evident throughout most of human history. That throughout most of human history, what made perfect sense was this, was that, you know what? Might makes right. The one who has the gold makes the rules. Owning another person? That's natural. Enslaving an entire population? Well, I mean, that, this is just the way of nature. This is just the way of things. It's so self-evident. Why would anyone ever question it? And then Jesus showed up. And when Jesus came, everything got turned upside down. And friends, we are the stewards of that message. He continues, he says this, the society, the society produced by Christians was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman ones it replaced. It objected to infant, 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 okay, you know what the word is, to prostitution and to the principle that might means right. It insisted that women were as valuable as men, and again, unheard of, In ancient times, it demanded, it demanded that even a society's enemies be regarded as human. All of this was asking the impossible. But it happened. But it happened. And it happened around the teaching of one Jewish rabbi whose word should never have survived the dusty 
first century, but it did. Once upon a time, what we consider normal. Once upon a time, what we in the Western world consider self-evident was unimaginable. And let me tell you what my concern is. Listen to me. Here's my concern. If we take it for granted, it might vanish from our culture. We take it for granted, and my grandchildren and our great-grandchildren may not have it. Some of you here this morning, some of you want to make America great again, and rightly so. And some of you are concerned about what does again mean? What is again in reference to, and rightly so? And of course we want our nation to be a great nation. Of course we want our nation to be as great as it can possibly be. And the key to our nation being great as it can possibly be is a thriving church because a thriving church that truly embraces the message of Jesus both in this life and in the life to come is a message that impacts the culture and the conscience of a nation a thriving church is how we get a great nation because Jesus defined what it means to be great Jesus defined great for us And he turned it upside down. And he said to his disciples one day, they're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus is about ready to die. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, Jesus, we know you're number one. And we got that. We understand that. You're number one. But we want to know who's going to be number two and who's going to be number three in the kingdom. Because when you rip off your rabbi robe and you have this M because you're Messiah and you turn around and on your back there's a K because, you know, you're the king, uh, we just want to know, Jesus, who's going to sit on your left hand and who's going to sit on your right hand? And Jesus looks at him and he says to him, okay, I need you all to sit down for a moment because you're, you still don't understand this. This is not the way that it works. Certainly in the rest of the world, you know, that's how the structures of power work. Got that? That's how it works. But not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, it's completely backwards. In my kingdom, it's turned upside down. I want you to follow me, he would say. But as you follow me, you remember this. Even the Son of Man, and he was talking about himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he would say to them, look, if you're up for that, you follow me and we will change the world. And they did. Jesus said it this way. And he said this to his first century audience. And I think he says it to you and to me as well. He says, you, you, those of you who have chosen to follow me, You are the salt of the earth. And when he said that to this group, they're kind of looking around at each other like, no, we're not. We're not the salt of anything. Nobody even knows that we're here. We're Judeans. We're Galileans. We're we're not even a sovereign state. We can't even make our own rules. We can't even trust our, our, our own leaders. We're not the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus said. But if the salt 
loses its saltiness. That is, that is this. That is, if you just blend in, if, if you just go with the flow, if, if you embrace the power structure of the world that it models for us, if, if you decide that being number one you know, is, is to the demise of everybody else around you, if you decide that somehow living for yourself you know, somehow makes you someone. If you forget that the value, that the value of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away. If you lose your saltiness, he says, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. It's no longer good for anything. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, he says to his first century audience, and you, he says to you, and he says to me, and this made no sense at the time, but looking back, it made all the sense in the world, right? Little did they know that they were on the verge of something great. Little did they know that they were on the verge. They were at the beginning of something that would truly revolutionize the world and topple an empire. You're the light of the world, to which they said, (laughs) we're not the light of the world. Rome is the light of the world. The city of Rome is the city set on a hill where all the instructions emanate from, where all the power emanates from. Rome is the light of the world. Caesar is the light of the world. We're not the light of the world. And Jesus would smile and say, you have no idea what's in store because I'm, I'm going to build my church and nothing, not even Rome, can stop it. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others. Well, what does that mean? That they may see your good deeds. Jesus, nobody's even paying attention to our good deeds. He would say, you just wait. Follow me. Follow me. And when people see your good deeds, when people see how you treat the sick, when people see how you honor women, when when people see how you honor children, when a plague comes through a village and you no longer fear death and you stay behind and take care of the sick, you let people see your good works and eventually, eventually they will glorify your Father in heaven and together we will change the world. And when Jesus says, you, that's not me. You is us. You is we. That's all of us. And think about this. We are the stewards. Think about it. We are the stewards in our generation of the church and of the faith for our generation. And the question that I have for you and the question that I have to constantly ask myself is this. Is as stewards of the church for our generation. What am I going to do about it? What are we going to do with it? Will we take from it what we can get from it? And sort of render it sidelined and ineffectual? Or will we? Will we engage with it? And in engaging with the church of Jesus, ensure that the church continues to shape the conscience of our communities and our nation 
and of our world. It is impossible for us to get our hearts and minds and emotions around it. But 2,000 years ago, and this all sort of came flooding in, if you will, standing outside that, that first century Roman Colosseum. 2,000 years ago, Jesus launched something for the ages. 2,000 years ago, Jesus launched something for you and for me. 21 years ago, we launched something for our community. And I'm confident, and we can all be confident, that God will complete what he has begun with all of our involvement. And now that we're merging with new life, now that we're becoming one church, new life and solid rock together, with our involvement together, we will complete what we have begun as well. Against all odds, it's, even, it's, it's impossible to even exaggerate. Against all odds, the, wor- the, the, the church changed the world once. And there's still a great deal that needs to be changed about our world. And by God's grace, and by us coming together as one church, by us coming together, perhaps, perhaps, because it's really about the mission of God at the end of the day. Right? Perhaps, perhaps, we can be a small part of bringing about that change in our communities, in our nation, and maybe in the world. And so here's what I'm inviting you to. Here's what I'm challenging you to consider. Whether you've been with us for 21 years, like some of you have, whether you've been with us for 21 years, over 21 minutes, in the words of the Apostle Paul, please Hear this from your pastor. In the words of the Apostle Paul to a group of first century believers who had no idea what hung in the balance of their faithfulness, here's what he said to them. He said, my friends, stand firm. Let nothing move you. And friends, when he used this language, this was battleground language, okay? Just put this in context. This was battleground language. In other words, stand firm. This is not a time to retreat. Stand firm. Resist. Dig in your heels. Prepare for the assault. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always, he said to them, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, even though they did not know, Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And friends, their labor in the Lord was not in vain because you and I are sitting here today in the 21st century. Right here. Their labor in the Lord was not in vain because we are here as a result of their labor. And the question is, will we take our cue from them because just as we are here because of their tenacious you know labor our labor will determine who's here tomorrow 
our labor will determine what the church of the future looks like, how it operates, and will it continue to embrace the extraordinary, extraordinary command of Jesus when he said this, if you forget everything else I tell you, please, don't, please remember this, because this is how people are going to know that you're my followers. You are to love, not as you've been loved, you are to love, not, not as you want to be loved, you are to love as I have loved you. And friends, the morning after he made that statement, he put on a demonstration of love that would literally take his breath away. And the world would never, ever be the same. And so for solid rock and for new life, as we come together to become one church, it's engage and it's stay engaged. Because we have been given the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm done. <laughs> Amen. you guys too. I've done everything I could to keep my emotions in check today, but I love you too, more than you will ever know. And I'll tell you how much more I love you next week. I love you today, but I'll love you more next week. (laughs) Amen. Can I pray with you? Would you bow your heads with me, and we'll pray, and then we'll go. Heavenly Father, there are no words that are adequate. There are no words that we can drum up inside or create inside. That could express the level of appreciation that we should feel for our first century brothers and sisters. And as I stood there in Rome a few weeks ago, looking out at that Colosseum, For the brave men and women who risked their lives just to make sure a portion of Scripture would make it into our world. Thank you for what you have begun. Thank you for what you've begun in us. Please give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us the courage to embrace this extraordinary, extraordinary opportunity as we come together as one church. It's an extraordinary opportunity that we can impact our communities and our nation and in a world that we never dreamed possible. And we ask these things in the amazing name of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen and amen. Let's give it up for the Lord.